So chapter 14, verse 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites that they must not turn, they must not turn and camp before Pi Hatharoth, between Migdal and the sea. You are to camp by the sea before Baal Zephon, opposite. Pharaoh will think regarding the Israelites, they are wandering around confused in the land, and the desert has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will gain honor because of Pharaoh and because of all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. So this is what they did. When it was reported to the king of Egypt and the people had fled, the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And the king and his servants said, What in the world have we done? For we have released the people of Israel from serving us. And then he prepared his chariots and took his army with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt and the officers and all of them. But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the Israelites. Now the Israelites were going out defiantly, defiantly, and the Egyptians chased after them. And all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and all the horsemen and all of his army overtook the camp by the sea beside Pi-Hatharium before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh got closer, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified. And the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away from to die in the desert? What in the world have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that you can serve the Egyptians, because it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Hasn't even been one day. This amazing act of faith (laughs) of sacrificing these animals and trusting in God. And then they're like, you should, we told you leave us in Egypt. Nobody put a gun to your head and forced you to leave. You chose to go. And they're immediately reneging on you. Now, here's the other thing. This isn't just a lack of faith. This isn't them just like seriously failing the first second they have a chance. They've actually accused God of just saving them to kill them. You know who saves you just so they can kill you? Psychopaths. They've just said, you just saved us and brought us out here so you could let us die. Weren't there enough empty graves to bury us now that you brought us out here? The only reason you brought us out here is there's not enough room to bury us over there. That's a huge accusation. They're complaining. Immediate lack of faith. But there's hope. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh that we will provide for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never ever see again. Yahweh will fight for you and you can be still. Now remember, before the ten plagues started, the people came to Moses and said, This is your fault and God's fault. Our life was fine until you made it worse for us. Go away. You're oppressing us. And Moses turned to God and said, This isn't right. This isn't going to work. See, I told you, you can't do this. Da, 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 da. Eleven months later, they say, You brought us out here to kill us. We're all going to die. This isn't going to work. And the first thing that Moses says is, Behold, your God will save you. Do not be afraid. Talk about a transformation. And that's going to be Moses' new default for the rest of the next three books. He has literally, within 11 months, gone from the guy who says, I'm not going, God. You send somebody else. Like, how dare you say that? Now he just said, your God is amazing, and he will save you. 
And if God can do that with Moses, then he can do it with them and he can do it with us. And that's the huge transformation here is what Moses goes through. This is what makes Moses a hero is what God has done in his life, not how amazing that he is. Do not be afraid. Verse 15, Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on, and as you for you, lift up your staff, the staff of Yahweh, extend your hand towards the sea and divide it, so the sea on dry ground. And as for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will come after them, and I will be honored. So, we're told that the angel moves the cloud. So this is what happens. All of a sudden, the pillar of fire, so the sea is in front of them, then the pillar of fire, and then Egypt, or Israel, and then Egypt's behind them. We're told that the pillar of fire moves from in front of them and goes behind them. And it cuts them off from Egypt. Then it turns into a wall. It like accordions out. And turns into this giant wall separating them from Egypt and them. We're told that when the Israelites look upon it, they see a wall of fire and light. When the Egyptians look upon the wall on their side, they just see darkness. And that should immediately make you think of First John, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. When the world sees it, they see darkness because that's what they are. And when the Israelites see it, they see light. And it becomes a barrier. Then God goes in and he sends a wind, the same word that is used of the wind hovering over the waters of the deep in Genesis and the flood, and he parts the Red Sea on both sides, creating a wall. Then they cross through the Red Sea, and the minute they're crossed safely through the Red Sea, then the pillar of fire closes back up into a pillar, from a wall to a pillar. It leaves and goes through the sea and goes back in front of Israel, which then allows the Egyptians to cross, to which what happens? The sea collapses on them and drowns them. From that point on, the pillar of fire will always stay in front of Israel. It's the only time it ever goes behind them. Now, why is God doing this? One, God could have defeated Egypt in a lot of ways. But he has to continue his theme of chaotic waters as a form of judgment. And so this is what he's doing. Just like the flood, he unreleased the chaotic waters in order to destroy the world and cleanse it. He's doing the same thing. He's finishing the decreation theme of Egypt by allowing the chaotic waters to overflow them and destroy them, just like the flood. But here's the other thing. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul tells us that when they crossed through the Red Sea, that was their baptism. They're going through the baptismal waters. Now, here's the image that God has painted here. They're in Egypt. Egypt is called the house of slavery, sin, and death. Pharaoh becomes a symbolic image of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of man in the First Testament, and then he becomes an image of the kingdom of Satan in the Second Testament. So they're under the power of the king of man, the king of Satan, and they're enslaved to sin and death. The only thing that will free them from their sinful slavery is if they put their faith in the sacrificed lamb. They have to eat of the meat. You have to eat the meat. This is one day that you're not allowed to be a vegetarian. They have to eat the meat in order to partake of the blessings. 
Then God, through a giant pillar of fire, leads them out, and that is their salvation. Their faith in the Lamb saves them. The fire delivers them from their life of slavery, sin, and death. They then go through the water baptisms, where their old life of Egypt is cut off from them and then cleansed and destroyed, and they come out cleansed into a brand new life where he's going to take them through testings where they will meet and know God, and then they will be led into the promised land. Do you see it? So basically you're told in Romans 6 that you're enslaved to sin and death, and you have no choice but to do that. But only when you believe in Jesus Christ as the Lamb who takes away the sins can you be freed from that. And only when you partake of his flesh and blood that those blessings become a part of you and he remains in you and you remain in him. From which the Holy Spirit, that giant pillar of fire that actually came down and dwelt upon everybody in Pentecost, then leads you out of your old life of slavery, sin, and death, which is first demonstrated through your water baptism that cleanses you of your sins and your old life and cuts you off. Where Paul then says, put off the old man and put on the new man continuously. Then as you walk through the wilderness of this life, you are put to the test by God and sanctified on a gradual journey where one day you will enter heaven into the new kingdom of God. What God does for Israel physically, he will do for us spiritually and the cross. And the exodus becomes the physical bedrock for the spiritual blessings of the cross to be poured out into us. It's exa- this is why Jesus says, if you really got it, if you really read it, if you really knew the Father, you would see it in me. I painted 50 million pictures for you in the First Testament. And now I'm every single picture all together in living color. And you're totally missing it. You're totally missing it. And there's more. When we get the tabernacle, we get the sacrificial system, when you get the festivals, it just keeps painting Jesus, painting Jesus over and over and over again. And so this is what he's doing. He's painting a picture of this. Now this is what's really cool. Because one day Israel and the church will both be in heaven standing before the throne of God and the physical promises made to Israel and the spiritual promises made to us will all come together as we become one people group in faith. And when the kingdom of God comes down to earth, we will receive the physical promises and they will re- we will receive the spiritual promises. And so together, not Jew and Gentile, but together as Israelites from every tribe, every nation, every language, every ethnicity, we will inherit both physical and spiritual promises in the kingdom of God. And that's what God is doing. He's painting these pictures. And when Jesus comes along, he takes all these threads, tabernacle, sacrifice, exodus, festivals, king, priest, shepherd, people, Israel, garden, and he takes them all and he ties them into himself. And then he becomes the natural outflowing of it all. And it's kind of like an hourglass. If you don't pass the first testament through Christ, then you don't get the benefit at the bottom. But you have to understand the first testament to get how amazing Christ is and what he's doing. You have to understand the first testament. All these authors keep quoting this over and over again. And so Paul says this was their baptism when they passed through the Red Sea. So why did God bring them through the Red Sea? 
not because it was an obstacle that needed to be overcome, but because it becomes a spiritual truth of who Christ is. It becomes a spiritual truth of who Christ is. Through the water, he continues the theme of cleansing and destroying sin. And through the water, he continues the theme of being born anew into a new life. And so what is destructive for Egypt is cleansing for Israel. Now, the question is, will they act like that? And so basically when we get to the next chapters, we will deal with a people who have put their faith in the Lamb, they have been baptized, but are they sanctified? Are they actually going to live like what they are? And that's what they're going to deal with. Any questions? Any comments? All right, and I will keep unpacking this more when we keep going deeper. When we get to the tabernacle, I'll go through this all again in a lot more detail because the tabernacle kind of brings it all together. Now, that brings us to chapter 15. Yay, poetry. We all love poetry. <laughs> chapter 15, we're told that they have been finally freed from Egypt and they then all of a sudden are on board with Jesus or on board with Yahweh. It's like, yay, we've been saved. See, I told you, it would all work out. And so now they sing this song because the natural response to what God has done is to praise him. And so we're told in verse 1 that Moses and the Israelites sang this song to Yahweh and they said, so Moses writes a song to God. He writes the song to God. Now this poem, is um, this song, is basically divided up into three strophes, or you would call it maybe three verses or three stanzas. And so it's divided up into three sections. The first section is Exodus, the first six verses, Exodus 15, verses 1 through 6. The second one is 7 through 11. And the, next, the last one is 12 through 16. And the last two verses, 17, 18, is the epilogue. The first two strophes focus on Yahweh's power to defeat the Egyptians. And the third one focuses on the fruit. So the first two, they praise Yahweh for his ability to defeat the Egyptians. And the last one focuses on the fruit of that defeat. And so Moses writes a song. Now, God uses poetry to break up the flow of narrative. A lot of times when you get used to something, but then when something like changes it all up, then it makes you focus even more. And so a lot of times what's interesting is God brings poetry in to get you to focus and to kind of break the flow. Um, but at the same time, he also uses pro poetry to talk about his salvation, to foreshadow a future salvation, a redemption. And so the first six verses, it says, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed glorious over the horse and its rider. He has thrown it into the sea, and Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a warrior, and Yahweh is his name. And the chariots of Pharaoh and his army has thrown into the sea. He has chosen officers and drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them like... Um, them, they went down to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shattered the enemy. 
So notice the focus here is on God's strength. And notice that it's military language. This is used in military language. He is our mighty warrior. He defeated them. And so we, we're told that he's defeating Egypt. He is the warrior. He's thrown in the depths of the sea. The sea is the most dominant theme here other than Yahweh's strength. And so the, once again, this should immediately take you back to the flood. The sea is the focus here on Yahweh's defeat. And the point here is this. Yahweh is not inept like the pagan gods. Because you have to put this in contrast to the ten plagues. Did any of the gods save Egypt in any way in those ten plagues? No. Now these slave people with these slave god are saying, you defeated the Egyptians. You controlled nature. You wiped out the army of the greatest nation. The point is, you, 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 you. Not Ray and Hathor and whatever. You did it only, and they did nothing. That's the point here. The contrast is that Yahweh is not an ept. So the next strophe is 7 through 11. In the abundance of your majesty, you have overthrown those who rise up against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood upright like heap, and the deep waters were solidified in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will chase, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be to be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like the lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, Working wonders. Now notice the emphasis now here is on God's ability to control everything. The first emphasis was on God's ability to destroy the enemy. Now it's on his ability to control the sea. And notice the language, you blew it out of your nostrils. That terminology is going to be used a lot when we get to the, um, the book of Judges and Samuel and the Psalms and the prophets. God's nostrils are often used as this wind of God. And so it's his mighty. Now, that gives the storm language. Now, eventually we're going to get to Baal when we get to Canaan, and Baal is a storm god. So you see this storm language because that's where they're going. And so God is not only showing that he's defeated the Egyptian gods, but he's also loading his song with Baal language. So they're already ready to accept that Yahweh is greater than Baal before they even get to him. And so he's using this language of the day. And so notice he's talking about the water, but notice it's also the chaotic sea. And if you have gone through Genesis, one of the big things about the gods is that the sea is the most chaotic thing in the world. Even today, we cannot control the sea very well. We can't Actually, we can't control it all. It's the most feared thing that is out there to us. So the nature, the most fearsome thing is the sea. And in our own lives, the thing that we fear the most is chaos. And so the sea becomes this image of chaos. And the only way that I'm going to vote for you to be my king or president is if you can control the chaos. And so by God using the sea, the chaos, to destroy the Egyptians, those gods don't have the ability to control chaos. 
But by Yahweh's ability to part the sea and then putting it back, he has the ability to control the chaos. That's why he's worthy of being your God. And so the first one is about him defeating an army of men. And the second stroke is about him controlling the chaos of nature and life that no other God can do. So why do you put your hope and trust in men? And why do you put your hope and trust in the gods when they weren't able to do either one of these things? And that's the point that they're making here. That brings us to the last stroke of 12 through 16. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And by your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to your holy dwelling place. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia or Philistines. Then the chiefs of Eden will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab and the inhabitants of Canaan will shake. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be still as stone. Until your people pass by, O Yahweh, until the people pass whom you have brought pass by. Now, the first thing he says is, you stretched out your right hand. He ends with that. My right hand of salvation is work. That's used all throughout the Bible. But notice he says, your loyal love will lead. Now, I told you that one of the things that makes Yahweh unique to all their gods is he's both sovereignly transcendent and intimately and unconditionally loving. So the first two straws focused on his strength and his sovereign power. This one then begins with, by your loyal love. The Hebrew word here is chesed. Chesed is the word that is used in the book of Ruth, of the loving kindness of Boaz to Ruth. But here's what's interesting. The word chesed is where we get the idea of unconditional love, or agape in the Greek. Now, unfortunately, unconditional love is not the best understanding because unconditional love is still so abstract. On a practical level, this word should really be translated as loving kindness. A loving kindness. So love that is not just I love you, but a love that is active by actually demonstrating kindness. The context of how this is always used is the most clearest contextual definition of loving kindness, chesed, is in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, Ruth goes to Boaz and says, why do you love me, a foreigner? We have to realize that you don't love foreigners in the ancient world. Foreigners mean not only, we're not just talking about today. Foreigners mean different gods, different practices. And so they would not be kind to foreigners. Foreigners, you probably had a fight just five years ago where they oppressed you in some kind of way. And if they come into your land, they're going to bring their gods with them. And their gods are going to screw everything up because they're the wrong gods. And you shouldn't be worshiping them. And so when she says this, she knows that there's no way that Israel would ever care for her. She's a woman without a husband, which means the gods are against her because the gods hate you some way or you sin in some way that they've killed your husband and you're a woman, and you're a foreigner. You don't get any more insignificant in the world than that. Okay, According to the world, you're the most insignificant person as a widowed woman who is a foreigner or a slave. That's when it gets worse. 
And so Boaz heaps this loving kindness on her over and over and over again. And she's shocked. And she says, why would you show this to me as a foreigner? She can't fathom it. And that's what that loving kindness is. So probably the best word for this is charity. Charity is this, it's not just unconditional love, which is kind of abstract, but charity is when you go intentionally to love somebody who you know will never, ever, ever give you anything in return because they can't afford it. Now, they might one day, but you know that that probably won't happen because rags to riches doesn't happen very often. And so this idea that you don't deserve it, you will never be able to do anything for me, but yet I'm going to heap loving kindness on you even though you're not a part of my life because that's chesed. And that's where we get the idea of unconditional. Unconditional. And that's what it says here. This is, we, we don't deserve it. I mean, we just proved it like an hour ago when we accused you of saving us just to kill us. And yet you still saved us. I know God can seem harsh and judgmental sometimes when you look at him killing the firstborn. But also think about a whole bunch of people who say, you only saved us to kill us. Life would have been better without you. And he says, and I'm going to save you anyways. Don't forget that side of God. Everybody says, oh, the God of the First Testament is mean and cruel, and the God of the Second Testament is nice and loving. No, no, no. If you really read it, God is incredibly loving and gracious in the First Testament. Now, yes, with Christ, this is what D.A. Carson says, and this is the best thing I've ever heard on this topic. When we get to the Second Testament, the love of God gets ratcheted up, and that's what we tend to focus on. Because there is a whole lot more love and grace in the Second Testament than there was in the First. Only because now we actually have the death and resurrection of Christ. Not because God has changed, but because our state has changed. And we can now receive more grace and salvation. But you also have to understand, according to the book of Hebrews and Revelation, not only does the grace of God get ratcheted up, but the judgment of God gets ratcheted up. Because now, you're not just going to die physically when you reject God. You're going to die eternally when you reject God. And so you can't forget the second coming of Jesus when we're talking about the God of the Second Testament. And so you can't, and this is what, this, and this is when we get to that golden calf, this is where it all comes together, that mercy and justice, the wrath of God and the love of God. And when we get there, we'll really unpack this. But I want you to see here, yes, you have a God that says, you deserve to die, and I'm going to kill you. But you also can't forget that he actually warned them and taught them how to escape. You don't deserve to live, but I'm still going to teach you how to escape the wrath. He didn't have to teach you how to escape. If, he, if somebody really wants to kill you, they don't teach you how to get out of it. And then on top of that, they say, we did everything you said, but screw you. We still don't like you. We still think you're going to kill us. And he says, but I'm still going to save you anyways. Don't miss that. Don't get so focused on the judgments of God, which are totally deserving, that you miss this incredible patience here. And that's where we're going in next week. Next week, we're going into the wilderness. and the wilderness, they just get worse. And the one thing I want you to see is if you're going to go and read ahead or if you haven't done it yet or you're going to do it again, pay attention to how patient God is. 
I mean, if it was you and I with our own kids, we'd be like, oh, <laughs> we'd be spanking them. We'd ground them. If it was like somebody that you don't even like to begin with, like a neighbor, you'd be suing them by now. All this kind of stuff. And God just keeps, oh, you, you want water? I'll give you water. You want food? I'll give you food. Oh, yeah, here you go. And every time they're like, you're just killing us. You're trying to kill us. And he just keeps loving them. Don't miss that. And then when he judges them, then you think, oh, yeah, they totally deserved it a long time ago. I can't believe that he actually was that patient for that long. Don't let the atheist rip these things out of context. It's a story. And that's what you need to see here, is this is the unconditional salvation by grace. These people don't deserve it. And yet he still saves them, just like us. You get excited about Christ, you accept him, and then you turn around probably within the same day and you screwed it up big time. And you're still screwing it up big time. And you think you've been, and you have 66 books of the Bible that they didn't have. You have Jesus Christ that they don't have. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they don't have, and you're still screwing it all up. And yet God loves you anyways. And yet God is hesed anyways. And yet God defeats your enemies anyways. And yet God overcomes the obstacles for you anyways. And yet God deletes you in ways that you don't understand just so he can do something really cool for you anyways. And he keeps doing it over again because God doesn't change. And what he does here, what's the beauty of these stories, is hopefully helping you see what you miss in your own life. When you read it in a story form, it's a lot easier to say, oh, yeah, that's me. But when you're in the pinball machine of America, being knocked around everywhere with your Google calendars and all that kind of stuff, you don't take the time to think that who really God is in the light of who you really are. So the point of this is not just to teach you who God is. The point is also to put a mirror in your face and show you what you're like. Because oftentimes we miss that. So don't forget that. This is the mighty Yahweh who controls all the chaos in your life. And he can bring order out of your emotional chaos, your physical chaos, your social chaos, your political chaos. Because he hesses you. 